Next Sunday's Father's Day, and so I'm just you know, reminding all the kids, uh, be, be prepared for Father's Day next Sunday, but uh, one way you can make sure your dad gets a book, and we want to be sure every man in our church, every visitor next Sunday gets a copy of Tony Dungy's Playbook for an Uncommon Life. This is kind of an abridgment. Now, the word abridgment should get the attention of most men, right? Because they don't like to read the whole book. Uh, the, the best stuff from his book, Uncommon Life, has been compiled in this book, a playbook for an uncommon life. And uh, Tony Dungy has done a lot for fatherhood. He introduced the program All Pro Dad uh, to try to uh, work through athletics to get more fathers involved in the lives of their kids. And when he got ready to introduce All Pro Dad to the college uh, and university programs, he used University of Georgia and Coach Mark Rick to introduce that All Pro Dad into um, our colleges and universities. And so we know that that's needed. That'll be my third hot potato that I'm dealing with next Sunday. Uh, Biblical manhood, what does it mean to be a dad, to be a father in a world where uh, we see such a radical feminization even of manhood? We'll look at that hot potato on next Sunday and challenge men to be the, the fathers, to be the husbands, to be the spiritual leaders God called them to be. Last week we looked at sexual sin and marriage and the sacredness of marriage. Uh, that was kind of the first hot potato that we dealt with this summer. And today, uh, to kind of carry us from the first to the third potato, the second hot potato is really uh, a lot of hot potatoes. We're going to look at uh, the title of the message this morning being, Is That? And you're thinking, what is that? What do you mean by that? Is that really wrong for me? And what I'll be looking at is several harmful habits, gray areas, and how those various choices can affect our witness as a Christian. So if you'll find your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, let's stand together as we open God's Word, and we'll look at the whole chapter, it's only 13 verses, and the question of, is that, whatever that is for you this morning, If I don't touch on the sin that most easily entangles you, then um, I apologize this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit will show you what that is. Uh, But I'm going to try to uh, be sure that we hit pretty much everybody this morning, including and especially even myself, as we look at this passage and, and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through His Word. It says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, and as yet he ought to know. But anyone, if anyone, loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, little g there in your Bible, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, capital G, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through him are all things, and through him we live. Now, 
Just a side note on verse 6, we'll come back, another hot potato will be on the exclusivity of Christ and all these other religions. And Paul is saying, we know there's only one God, one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus. However, verse 7 there, is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with the consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weakened is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. This is not speaking here of the physical well-being, but the spiritual implications of eating meat sacrificed to idols. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never again eat meat. Let me remind you again of the context. He's talking about meat sacrifice to idols. He would not do that if it would cause a brother to stumble and fall into idolatry. He says, lest I, I make my brother stumble. Father, we thank you for this word. And it seems a little bit difficult in our day and age to understand because we don't grapple with the meat sacrificed to idols. But Lord, we certainly face a lot of other areas, sins and habits, and some uh, perhaps even gray areas. And we, we need to know how to respond to that. We need to know how to respond in love, but according to truth and with wisdom. And we pray that you would give us that through your word and by your spirit this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. I remember having a conversation one time and bringing out an old familiar phrase of mine, and that is this, wherever there are two Baptists, there are three opinions. And this fellow went on to point out to me that, well, yeah, but anywhere there are four Episcopalians, there's always a fifth. Well, it took me just a while to grasp that, but some of you know what a fifth is, and so you're already on top of that one. And uh, we were talking about how most Baptists tend to be teetotalers, total abstinence from alcohol. Uh, indeed, in some churches you can walk in, and they, if you take the Lord's Supper together and, and you drink, it's not the same Welch's grape juice that we're drinking here, and you can tell that right away. I remember being with a college team in Israel when we all partook of the Lord's Supper together, and we... We turned up uh, what we thought were our communion cups. We later thought they were shot glasses because we thought, wow, that's not like the grape juice I had back at the Baptist church I grew up at. And so we, we talk about things like drinking and smoking and chewing, and uh, we used to say as even a youth group, uh, it was a great testimony to say, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. And so that's uh, probably a good testimony to still stick by. So why are we choosing a passage this morning that deals with the subject of meat sacrifice to idols? Well, the Corinthians that had not come to the Lord were polytheists. They believed in many gods, but they were also believers in many evil spirits. And uh, there was uh, an understanding, and it was a perverted understanding nonetheless, but that if they sacrificed a certain portion of meat, to the idols or to the evil spirits, they would flee from the rest of the meat of the animal, 
and it was, had been further expanded in their temples, their, their pagan temples, all kinds of worship took place where meat was sacrificed to false gods for the sanctification of some kind of meat. And so you could go into those temples and basically get cheap meat, either buy it and take it with you or eat it there at the temple. But you could save a lot of money. And if you were a Christian, Paul points out that if you were a believer, you knew that um, those false gods were not real. They were indeed dead gods. And so if you could save a buck as a Christian eating some meat, even though it had been used in pagan worship, if you could buy that meat, you could get a good deal on it and uh, save a buck along the way, and you could just kind of blow off the fact that it was used in, in that kind of setting. And Paul said some of you are mature enough to grasp that. Some of you are not mature enough to grasp that. Some of you also need to be careful lest you cause someone to stumble. So we'll use this as a context because it was considered a gray area. This was an area of controversy in the Corinthian church. They were trying to find the balance to enforce holy and righteous standards without legalism. Legalism is where we add to the Scriptures. They also wanted to be sure that they were still proclaiming liberty in the gospel without liberalism. So that's a, that's a hard balance to find sometimes. Holiness without legalism, liberty without liberalism, with, without just saying, well, just whatever you want to do will be okay. As long as it's not sin to you, then we're, then we're okay. That's kind of the, the other extreme, the other approach. It's a form of liberalism. It's a gray area that we uh, struggle with today. Uh, they, if they wanted to buy something cheap, they had to worry about whether or not it was demonic or possibly uh, whether or not they were patronizing those who practice evil with their money. They didn't want to invest in evil practices. Others thought, well, there's really no way to avoid that because if you go down to the blacksmith and purchase something, he could use it to uh, use the money to, to support the same evil causes. We struggle with that today, don't we? If we go to a hotel... It's probably going to be owned by a Mormon or a Hindu in the United States these days. It's hard to avoid that. If we go to a gas station, especially if we're out of town, we know maybe certainly here in Madison County we can find maybe one or two gas stations here or there where we're not worried about our money given to Arab or Muslim causes. But if you, you leave town, it's kind of hard to find that. It's hard to buy a good cup of coffee where you're not giving your money to flaming liberals who stand against a lot of things that conservative churches stand for. I love Chick-fil-A, but I'll tell you, I can't eat, as much as Baptist preachers love fried chicken, I can't eat every meal at Chick-fil-A and make sure that I'm investing in good Christian Bible-believing causes. I'm going to go other places from time to time, meat sacrifice to idols from time to time without even knowing it. And so Paul asks both sides here to show understanding. And he also gives us some principles for approaching various issues. Now, let me say this about these shades of gray here. Not all issues are the same shades of gray. The Bible more directly confronts some of these areas and more indirectly confronts others, and we need wisdom and we need grace as we confront these in our own lives and the lives of those that we love. Not all Christians are in the same place spiritually. That's one of the difficulties of preaching from Sunday to Sunday 
is really just leaving it up to the Holy Spirit to take the truth of God's Word, to preach it unapologetically, say, this is God's Word, but let the Holy Spirit meet you where you are in your process of spiritual growth. And as Christians, to let one another enjoy the freedom of the spiritual growth, but yet at the same time make sure that it's taking place. So I want to give you three considerations that will walk us through, I believe, whatever that habit may be, whatever that sin may be, whatever that gray area may be in your life, I believe these principles this morning, these three considerations will help give us the understanding that we need to be proactive and not reactive in this process. And the first one is I want us to consider the priority of establishing a love relationship with God and his church. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, before you get all sidetracked by these other areas, let's establish the fact that there is a priority of a love relationship with God and his church. And so in verse 1, he gives them a warning. He says, now concerning these things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And then it's this warning to be careful because knowledge puffs up. If you have knowledge of something, you can walk around arrogantly. He later would confront them on how they were abusing spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because those who had discovered their spiritual gifts and were employing their spiritual gifts were kind of strutting their stuff in the church and saying, man, I must be spirit-filled. I've got something you don't have because you haven't learned to employ your spiritual gift in the same way. 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 surround 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is all about what? Love. It's the love chapter of the Bible. And he says, there's something, he even introduces 13 by saying, I'm going to show you something better than all these gifts, and that is love. That we might be guided by a love relationship with God and a love for one another. Knowledge is going to make you proud, but love... He says in verse 1, edifies. The word edify means to build up. And that's what we want to ask when we face these issues. Are we building up ourselves? Are we building up the body of Christ, making us stronger for God's glory? Love meets people where they are and builds them up. And that was the spirit in which Paul wanted them to receive an understanding of this whole meat sacrifice to idols issue. So verse 2, he says, and if anyone... That includes those who tolerate certain behaviors and others who might condemn those same behaviors. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Just the fact that they were not expressing some humility at addressing the subject revealed that they really weren't as spiritually minded as they thought they were. And then in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Love it was not just a, a picture of, uh, of where we were with God, but where God was with us, that God knows us, he is working in our lives, that he's changing us. Indeed, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, and 1 John was written to help us understand whether or not we were truly in the faith, truly saved or not. In 1 John 4, 8, he says, He who does not love does not know God because God is himself love. So if we say that we're a believer and we're growing in grace and that, that maybe with a little pride we approach these subject matters and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. I'm glad I'm better off than somebody else. And we're not showing love in the process. He says, you're struggling just as much as they are because if you have a real walk with God, you'll love God, you'll love people, and that'll set the temperament which you approach this subject. It's not one of spiritual pride or arrogance. Spiritual pride can destroy a church. Look what... 
Paul told Timothy, just listen to this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good. And all the hunters said, Amen. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That's why we pray before a meal. There's a, a, a sanctifying and a giving of thanks and a setting. In verse 6, he, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, If the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables. Exercise yourselves toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so he's explaining, Paul is telling Timothy, don't let a spirit of legalism permeate, especially when it comes to this subject also of meat sacrifice to idols, that we get, we get so concerned about what's going into the body that sometimes we forget the most important thing that's to be in the body is the Spirit of God and the presence of Christ. Paul told the elders at the church in Acts, uh, at the church at Ephesus in Acts, to take heed to themselves, and we're going to talk about the importance of taking heed to our bodies in just a moment. But we need to realize that God transforms us from the inside out, not the outside in. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a familiar passage. You know, he says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we're to take care of our bodies, presenting it as a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. He says, which is your reasonable act or spiritual act of worship. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be ye what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that is a reminder to all of us that God wants to change us, transform us. As believers, we're to be in a process of transformation, and that happens from the inside out, not the outside in. There are some people who won't come to church today because they say there's a certain habit, there's a certain sin, there's something that I need to get out of my life, and when I get that out of my life, then I'll come to a place of worship. And I believe God would have us respond to that statement by saying, listen, all of us at church have things that we're struggling with and battling with. That's why we're there. We're there to get under the Word of God and in the presence of the, the, the believers to encourage and to spur one another on so that we can get those things out of our life. It was said, I even heard it again on the radio this morning, that the church is not a museum for saints but a hospital for sinners. And so we need to be transformed from the inside out. I've talked to individuals who, when they have visited a church for the first time, have been judged based on their outward appearance rather than admonished to allow God to come and live inside of them and be changed from the inside out. And that's the way God wants to work in our lives. Now, this time of year, a lot of you understand what I'm talking about. There are a lot of folks that are starting to see some growth in their gardens. I've probably had at least two or three individuals this past week tell me about some things that were coming up in their garden and what was taking place. Now, I'll just be honest with you, and my wife can vouch for this. I don't try to plant a garden because I, I'm, I'm lousy at it. Not only do I not have a, a green thumb, I have a dead thumb, and it kills 
everything that I try to work with. I, I just, it just has never worked for me. But some of you do a great job. I, I don't know a lot about, you know, you can rake, you can hoe, you can water, you can fertilize, you can keep the critters and all kinds of strange ways that people are uh, employing to keep the critters away. But I do know this much. You're not going to get corn unless you planted corn. I mean, is that pretty much the truth? If you didn't plant corn, you're not going to get corn. And in the church, a lot of times we want people to start becoming more Christ-like or even better, what we think Christ-likeness is. We, we want to sometimes even create them in our own image because in our own arrogance we might think we're more Christ-like than somebody else. But if they don't have Jesus living on the inside of them, the outward activities are never going to change. And so what's more important, that we, we, we deal with all the outward things or that the inward is there? And that's what we want to deal with first and foremost. That's why we want anybody and everybody who possibly can to be under the sound of the preaching and teaching of God's Word so that God can begin to change their hearts and change them from the inside out. The key is making sure that they have Jesus on the inside. And the key is for me and you to make sure we have Jesus living on the inside of us so that we will lead them with love and grace in that process. Make sure His Spirit is guiding us in this process. We often worry about outward appearances. I remember when a, a young man uh, walked into a worship service, and I was so glad that he was at church back when we were worshiping, worshiping up here in the old sanctuary. I was so glad he was at church that day. But he just happened to have on his Budweiser jacket. And he was uh, evidently a big Dale Jr. fan. And, and I know that a lot of eyes turned that way, and they say, man, I can't believe he wore his Budweiser jacket to church when we should have been saying, man, I'm excited that he is in church today. Or, or some might say, I can't believe that he uh, spiked his hair and combed it that way when we should say, that really doesn't matter. I'm glad that he's in a place of worship today. Sometimes we worry about tattoos and, and piercings and everything on the outward when God is concerned about the inward appearance. The principle behind the precept of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, where he says that we're, uh, you know, not to mark ourselves and, and pierce ourselves. Well, a lot of you ladies have violated that. You know, you, you have your ears pierced some two or three times. Maybe a few of you guys do. I don't know. But uh, that, that's, that's one that's kind of violated all the time, right? Well, we need to look at the principle behind the precept. When that was given as the law to the Israelites in Leviticus, and when it was repeated in Deuteronomy, why was it saying what it was saying? See, as, as parents, we don't like to answer those questions. When, when we say there's a certain behavior that's expected, and the kid says, well, I need an explanation. Why do I need to behave that way? We usually say, because I'm going to knock you in the middle of next week if you don't obey me. But as kids get older, if we don't give them the why to the whites, then they will rebel. And, and so when it comes to this subject, you know, like even in Leviticus, when it deals with, with piercings and tattoos and all of that, if you read the principle behind the precept, if you understand the context, the cultural context, and, as well as the situation of that day, you realize what he was saying was, when you go into this land, there are those who identify with pagan worship and idolatry, worship of the an ancestors, worship of the dead, and, and they tattoo these images all over them to identify with the pagan gods, pagan deities, and even dead ancestors. And don't be confused for that religion. Don't be confused for that crowd. By the way, your piercings, 
and your cuttings, and, and I know cutting means something totally different today, but in that day, your piercings and, and, and your cuttings were not to identify you with that crowd. And so I'm not going to get all upset and frustrated and angry if, um, if a, a college student comes to me and says, guess what, I had a cross tattooed on my shoulder. Because I know the principle behind the precept of Scripture was not to identify with pagan deities, pagan gods, pagan worship. Now, some of you are like, well, you just gave my kids uh, uh, permission to go get a tattoo, didn't you? I always remind them a couple of things. Tattoos are often a permanent decision from a temporary emotion, so be careful about that. You know, your favorite race car driver can change his number. Um, Your girlfriend can break up with you. Uh, You can just find yourself 10 or 20 years down the road going, man, that was stupid, and I'm going to have to pay all this kind of money to get rid of that. But you know what? I'm going to be a lot more worried about what's going on on the inside than I am the outside. You know, if you want to look like you fell into a tackle box and everything stuck to your face, guys, I can give you other things to to tell you to be careful about, and we're we're going to get to that with my third point this morning. But as believers, before we get too critical of all the outward things, let's ask if they've got Jesus living on the inside. When I was a youth pastor at Mount Gilead Baptist Church, we had revival there in, in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, and one night we had a testimony from my friend from seminary. It just went by the name Charlie the Biker. And I'll tell you, I think Charlie scared that church half to death. But Charlie showed up wearing his leather and his patches and his, his jeans, and he had his long ponytail and all that. And, and uh, Charlie was a, a radical for Jesus. But he didn't look like the rest of the folks at Mount Gilead Baptist Church in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. I guarantee you. But I'll tell you something. When one of the world-famous bikers there in Raleigh, North Carolina, a guy that had led rallies, from Myrtle Beach all the way to the West Coast, a world-famous biker dies. Who do they ask to do the funeral in Raleigh? They call Charlie the biker. Thousands show up. And it's not some clean-cut Southern Baptist preacher that got to share the gospel that day. It was Charlie the biker. So we've got to be very careful to look on the inside and not the outside. Now, secondly, I want you to see that there's a process of evaluating behavioral impact on ourselves. Let's think about this. When you look at verses uh, 4 through 7 in this same chapter, he, he gets down to the eating of the things offered to idols. You've got this love relationship in place. And he says, we know that there's one God, for even if there are many so-called gods, verse 5, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, many false gods, little g there, yet for us there is one God. We have an understanding of this. However, there is, verse 7, not in everyone that knowledge. And so you need to be evaluating for some with consciousness of the idol. And he says, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. In other words, they know what they're doing is wrong. They know they're involved in a sinful behavior, in idolatry. They're doing something that's wrong. And and God is beginning to speak to their conscience. And, And because their conscience is weak, they can see you eating. We'll talk about the influence on others in a moment. But But he's saying, basically, you need to evaluate your behavioral impact on yourself. What is the Spirit of God saying to you? What is the Word of God saying to you? Not about meat sacrifice to idols, but about what your gray area, what your habit, what your sin, what your struggle might be. Food isn't always the issue. Peter was told by the Lord Jesus in a vision, Acts chapter 10, Arise, kill, and eat. He says, quit making food the issue. Quit making the animals the issue. There are deeper things, more important things that you need to be dealing with. And again, as I said a moment ago in Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul told the elders, take heed to yourselves. So evaluate the impact. Evaluate the behavioral impact 
of all of these gray areas, all of these habits, and some that aren't so gray because they're directly confronted in Scripture, evaluate the impact of that on yourselves. What is the impact of any particular behavior on your mind or on your body? Here's an overriding principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20, we looked at it into the context of sexual sin last week, but let's apply it to any area of our life. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you received of God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So you and me are stewards of the bodies that God has given us. So we need to evaluate the behavioral impact of our choices on our own bodies and understand, again, the, the different gray areas speak to different people. It's more than a dozen hot potatoes just looking at these areas this morning. Why does... Why does the New Testament seem to deal so vaguely with some of these and more directly with um, the tolerance? Am I echoing out there? Bounce around. I'm going to switch mics up here, Walker. We need to ask the question, so why does the New Testament deal so urgently with and show so little time for tolerance of things that we looked at last week, like sexual sin and uh, verbal sin and violence and things like that? I believe that the Bible confronts sexual sin and our verbal sins, our our verbal assault, physical assault, so quickly because you can destroy a life in less than a couple of minutes in those areas. And so the Bible confronts them real boldly and right up front and says, you need to get this out of your life because you're going to destroy yourself or you're going to destroy somebody else with your actions. But what about these other areas, these other hot potatoes we're talking about this morning? These are what we might call some of the termites. These are some of the areas where you might not see the immediate destruction, but over time they eat away at you. Over time they begin to bring destruction. Take, for example, the the area of alcohol. Uh, This is from uh, Scott Cosper's blog, and he leans heavily on a sermon that some of you have heard before by Johnny Hunt, Dr. Johnny Hunt, who preached a message on should a Christian drink. 50% of high school seniors report drinking in the last 30 days. 32% reported being drunk at least once. There are nearly half a million teenage alcoholics in America today. 17,274 died in alcohol-related accidents last year. Despite all efforts, alcohol-impaired drivers killed someone every 30 minutes, nearly 50 people a day, and almost 18,000 citizens a year. Forty percent of all auto accidents are alcohol-related. Two out of every five people will be involved in an alcohol-related crash during their lifetime. In the last 10 years, four times the number of who died in the Vietnam War were killed in alcohol-related accidents. Youth who drink alcohol are 50 times more likely to do illegal drugs. It begins to lead them in the wrong direction. Now, most agree with the Scriptures, and there are plenty of Scriptures that tell us that drunkenness is a sin. When the mind is altered, when there is dissipation, uh, the inability to control one's thought process, then that is a sin. But what about social drinking? Uh, Some have said, well, just so you know when to say when. And, And Dr. Johnny Hunt said the problem with that one is after the first drink, most people's brake fluid starts leaking Then we have to ask our questions, are we patronizing an industry that destroys lives? Do we understand that 
in Scripture, strong drink was for those, Proverbs 31 says, who are dying. Wine in the Bible is often one part fermented grape juice, 20 parts water, and the wine was in there to preserve the water because they didn't have the kinds of uh, sanitary systems that we have in the day in which we live. And so while we can give you a direct warning from Scripture that you're not supposed to be drunk with wine, you're not supposed to have your mind altered, with the drinks that we have in the world today, almost all of them would alter your thinking after the first drink. Alter that process. And not only that, we'll get to the second part of this in a moment, it can cause someone else to stumble. Here's another one. Now, here's something that bothers me. Proverbs 23 and verse 20 Gluttony is placed right there with drunkenness. He says, be not among drunkards or gluttonous eaters of meat. And this is not talking about meat sacrificed to idols. And weight so much wasn't the issue in this day and time where everybody walked where they got. But it was the fact that people could just eat themselves stupid, literally. They could eat to where they didn't have control of their mind or body either. The point was eating yourself into a trance is just as bad as drinking yourself into one. So it's amazing how many pastors there are who will preach hard against drinking, but will do very little to discipline themselves and their dietary habits in their life. What about tobacco? Well, we all know smoking causes heart disease, lung cancer, nicotine addiction, a lot of things we know about tobacco that we didn't know many, many years ago. And so now we've come to a day and age where it's politically incorrect to smoke in public or for the most part even in private. And most of us would agree with that. But in good old Madison County, now listen, when I was in North Carolina, you could stand up and, 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 and talk about uh, habitual smoking or, or, or chewing or something like that. And boy, you were really touching on a hot potato because that's the tobacco capital of the world. Half of the people in the church raised it on the farm at some point in their life. What about dipping and chewing and things like that? And probably every kid needs to experience what I did when uh, guys a couple of houses down brought a can of uh, Silver Creek. And everybody got to dip silver. Nastiest stuff I ever put in my mouth. And we got out and we were playing a game of field hockey. Now, field hockey for us was a basketball and baseball bats, which is kind of dangerous in and of itself. But that day it didn't last long because we were all puking our guts out. And probably every kid ought to experience that at one time or another. But what about this? Mouth disease, gum disease, throat cancer, the impact of the nicotine of smokeless tobacco on the heart, bone loss, Ruining the teeth. We're to be good stewards of the body. So we need to evaluate those things in the process. And now what's becoming more and more popular, and even in this area, even though it's not legalized yet, recreational marijuana use. You realize marijuana has 70% more cancer-causing substances than tobacco? If that's not worse, the use of marijuana also alters the mind we already said we're not supposed to be drunk to the point of dissipation where we don't, dissipation where we don't have control of our mind and our physical faculties, and marijuana alters the state of the mind. Marijuana becomes a gateway drug to other drugs that affect the mind. 
and for good old Madison County, Georgia, and we, we read about uh, comments in the paper. If you read the paper online like I do and you read while others are commenting on what's being said in the paper, they, they don't even say Madison County anymore. They say Methison County. You say, well, these kids know better. They're not going to go out and they're not going to try crystal meth because they know after the first try they're likely to be addicted. And, and, and 10 years later, their, their, their facial appearance and everything else is going to be destroyed. Well, they might not run out and try marijuana, but see, if they get used to saying, okay, well, mom and dad says dipping's okay and social drinking's okay and smoking's okay, these become gateways to wanting to try something like, well, maybe marijuana, and that's not doing the trick anymore. Let me try meth. So we're to take heed to ourselves and evaluate the impact on our bodies. Caffeine is something we've got to be careful about, especially these energy drinks. WebMD says that there's a substance, Pastor Ben told me about this this past week, called taurine, which is necessary for the body to help you process protein. But taurine in excess has been linked to episodes of hyperactivity and mania. Some of us don't need that. And so these energy drinks with extra amounts of caffeine and added taurine can cause hyperactivity and mania at loss of control of the mind. And so we've got to be careful about what we're putting into our body. So we have to objectively ask, how am I treating the temple? But let's not stop there. I want to close just by looking at these last four or five verses. Beware somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge in an idol's temple, Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Verse 13 again, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He was saying is, you may understand there is no temptation whatsoever for you to worship false gods. You may understand that you can go into a temple, that God is dead, you're just getting cheap meat, and you're just saying thank you very much, and it's no big deal for you, not a struggle. But your being in there may cause someone else to say, if they can be in there, I can be in there. That person may be weak in their faith. They may go in and they may struggle with idolatry and fall back into their idolatry, idolatrous ways. So you have to ask yourself the question, does this behavior cause me to build up the body or does it cause my brothers and sisters to str- stumble? So you argue, we often argue that we should be able to hold on to some of our gray areas. If we win those arguments, do we really win in the end? We have to ask questions. It's okay for me to go back to the buffet. Let's say I win that argument. What does that tell my kids? Eat all you can while you can. Pastors and deacons and parents, we say, shouldn't be drinking. Let's say somebody argues, well, Hey, I think, Pastor, it's okay if you just socially. You know, after a deacon's meeting, you probably need a drink, right? No, I'm just kidding. Social drinking's not a big deal. Some churches, they may say, we had beer at the deacon's meeting. I don't know. But let's say a teenager says, you know what? Pastor drinks. Pastor drinks, okay for me to drink. And it ruins that kid's life. So we have high standards so that we don't cause somebody else to stumble. I try to tell parents all the time, what you tolerate in moderation, your children will tolerate in excess. And so with tobacco juice flowing from our lips, we tell the kids, don't do it. 
certain tattoos and piercings. Again, we're not focused on the outward appearance, but it may cause somebody to stumble. We don't want to cause somebody to stumble. So in those settings, listen, again, I'm not one to preach against tattoos and piercings. But I will give you a warning that it may cost you a job when you go for a job interview. So be careful about certain things like that. Don't cause someone else to stumble and hurt yourself in the process. Females often argue in a, in a feminist world in which we live today that um, I can wear whatever I want to wear, wear whatever clothes I want to wear. Doesn't matter if they're too short or too tight. I should have the freedom to wear what I want to wear. But does it cause a young man to stumble? See, when you get dressed, do you think more about your rights or whether or not you will cause someone else to stumble? And for the girls who say, well, that's the boy's problem, I always want to remind them, boys are sin-fallen just like you are. And they battle with lust. And Dr. Adrian Rogers said, if any man says that he's not battling with lust on a daily basis, he's either God, Superman, or no man at all. And so, young ladies, you may feel like you have certain privileges and freedoms and rights, but ask yourself, would this cause somebody else to stumble? In all these gray areas, we must ask, number one, is loving God and others the priority as I approach this? Is this good for me? Am I harming my own body? And number three, am I causing someone else to stumble? And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 should guide our prayer life as we hear the apostle tell us to lay aside every weight and the sin. Why did he say every weight and the sin? Because some of these gray areas may not be directly confronted in Scripture as sin, but you know it weighs you back. You know that it holds you down. So he says, lay aside every weight, lay aside all these controversies, and the sin, whatever sin easily entangles you, and run with endurance the race that is set before you. And so yes, it starts by making sure the inside is right, a love relationship with God and Christ, but then evaluating the impact of these other areas on your body And finally saying, and I don't want to cause anybody else to stumble in the process. If that makes sense, say, "Uh uh-huh. All right. A few of you got it. Now, see, last week when when a Baptist preacher preaches on marriage and the sacredness of marriage, Baptists say, amen. And then when you get on these other subjects, we all say, oh, me. Goodness. But we're in a process. God is growing us. Let's be changed from the inside out. Bow your heads with me this morning.